We're drinking these festive Bloody Marys. Mm. Lots of red and green going on so for the beautiful. holidays. Morgan's quite the brew mistress. So this is a Christmas anthology. We've got to get started. We haven't done our appropriate intro oh, you're yet. Right. Oh my God. I can't believe what is wrong with <laughs> the me. The Dukes stole Christmas and they stole our intro. Oh God. Fucking Dukes. Fucking Dukes. Okay. All right. Ready? Mm. <sighs> Hi, I'm Isabeau. And I'm Morgan. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. Dukes. Both in name and title. Christmas. Both in name and title. A podcast about the choices that we make during the holidays. <laughs> the choices that we make year round. That's true. Well, that's pretty much covers all of our bases. <laughs> <laughs> cool. <laughs> cool. We did a great job of riffing there. I think this is also a podcast about dope ass riffing that we're very good at. Usually. Everyone is impressed. But mostly, it's about that first thing romance novels and ourselves. This week on the podcast, we are delving into How the Duke Stole Christmas, a holiday romance anthology featuring Tessa Dare, Sarah McLean, Sophie Jordan, and Joanna Shoopy? Shoop. There it is. Joanna Shoop. That's what hard. if it's what if the H is silent and it's Joanna Soup? <laughs> that sounds delicious. <laughs> I think we should ask her. <laughs> Joanna. Your name sounds real good. Oh, all soup. the ways we say it. It's like a good soup day. Mm, it is a good soup day here in Chicago. There's soup outside and I wish there was soup on my insides. Well, I have soup in my refrigerator if you want some. Instead, I ate White Castle. I had my first White Castle experience. Oh, before Jesus coming Christ. Here. I'm so sorry. I like the texture because it feels like mm-hmm. I'll never not be able to eat them. <laughs> fair. Super fair. I've also only been to White Castle once and it was on Valentine's Day. Mm. Yep. Love is alive. Uh, I totally get why old people like it. Yeah. Old people like all sorts of stuff. Easy to gum down those bogeys. It's true. And those crinkle cut fries. All right. How do we want to dial into this guy? Well, we are now speaking with the benefit of a lot of experience. We've talked about one Christmas anthology twice now. That's true. We are so good at this. We know the process. I think we start off Mm -hmm. by doing a little take in turns, providing summaries for each of the stories. Sure. And then we talk about our weirdest part and our sexiest part. That sounds great. Overall. Overall. Why don't you start? Because... You love Tessa Dare. I've loved Tessa Dare for a long time, so I'm always happy to see her books. I love novellas. And that's one of the things that I really love about the romance genre anyway. It's like really committed to novellas as a form. So Tessa Dare's sweet little Christmas novella is Meet Me in Mayfair, wherein we have a lively family called the Carvilles. Their eldest daughter, Fiona, has to find a man. Otherwise, they'll be thrown out of their fucking house in Mayfair. Oh, shit. I meant to make shortbread cookies. That's okay. We can order shortbread cookies. From where? I don't know. I'll look on the grubs. Grub spot. (laughs) Shortbread (laughs) cookies. I'm sure we can find it. I'm just disappointed in myself. (sighs) It's okay. They're going to get tossed out of their house in Mayfair because the father of this clan of Carvilles has had this gentlemanly agreement with a duke who has since died. And now the heir apparent, the new duke, is going to toss them out on their ear. And the only place Daddo has been able to secure a position is on the Isle of Guernsey. So the entire family is going to have to relocate after Christmas. To Guernsey! To Guernsey. The shame of it. Unless Fiona can catch a man 
at this last ball. Just get him. So her sisters are like, here, here's some magical shortbread. You eat it. You'll fall in love. And she's like, oh, God, I guess I have to take all the help I can get. She eats the shortbread, which tastes like death, goes to the ball. And her best friend is like, Fiona, I need you to take my dance card. Fifi. Fifi, girl, I need you. If you name your daughter Fiona, you should really call her Fifi. If you name anything, Fiona, perhaps (laughs) think about naming the nickname be Fifi. Because her best friend wants to run away with the solicitor's son. And she's going to Gretna Green tonight. So This very evening. This very evening. And so the ruse is Fiona has to take the dance card, tell everybody that her friend has a headache, LOL. And lo and behold, the person on the dance card. I think it's important to point out that she's really disappointed with the dance card because her friend obviously was trying to not get married and Fiona has to try really hard to get married and so one of the bodies on her dance card is her cousin not the heroine's cousin <laughs> yeah her friend's cousin uh yeah that's a really really good point all the people on the dance card are you know sort of old and like ineligible for numerous reasons but lo and behold friend gonna have the fourth dance with her cousin cousin happens to be the dude Duke of Thorndale. The Duke who's going to toss her family out in the the cold. One in the the same. same. So our dear friend Fiona knows about Duke Thorndale, but he doesn't know about her. Ooh. He a bad landlord. He doesn't know who is in his houses. He's a, yep. He is ignorant and he hates London. He hates Mayfair. He hates the marriage mart. He just wants to go back up to Yorkshire and play in the field. He's a little bit country. And she's a little bit rock and roll. (laughs) I don't know if she's rock and roll either. She's Mayfair. Is that that, that's fancy, right? Yeah, it's super fancy. I like, it's like um, Belgrave, yeah. You know, it is kind of refreshing to read a book that romanticizes a wealthy part of town instead of being like, look at all this poverty. Like Whitechapel. Yeah. What's also weird about like this sort of move is like her family is only affluent because of a really bad business deal on the part of a stranger that none of them really know. Yeah, and she's acting very entitled to live rent free in a mansion. No kidding. No <laughs> kidding. And like, it's totally fine that they the new duke is like of course you're not gonna live basically rent free in mayfair that real estate is worth so much money you idiots and i need that money to fix the fields for the people who actually need it back in cumbria and i also want to point out like of course she loves london yeah she lives in the fanciest part of london yeah never goes anywhere else well yeah that's true so they dance and she's witty and she's trying not to engage with him and he doesn't want to engage with her either because he believes that all women just want him for his money his life is so hard all the women are just after him and they never get to know him and it's so hard to be James Thorndale and then you know like all these fake bitches (sighs) fake bitches be fake bitches (laughs) no new friends declares the Duke of Thorndale and then here comes this breath of God, hang on one second what's her name not well it was fiona but maybe it's not fiona maybe it's louisa oh shit oh it is louisa her oh, sister's fiona fuck. we blew it we're reading this book as we're talking about <laughs> sorry everybody shit. the one time we don't write down the character's name we need to we always need to do that uh, <laughs> shit it's totally louisa louisa ward our main character <laughs> fiona carville her friend james thorndale our hero They dance. He insults her, which is always a good way to start. He doesn't know that she is a tenant. And that's the main obstacle to the whole story. She doesn't tell him who she is. And since he doesn't know what her last name should mean to him, she is in charge of the fiction. Hmm. And then when it all comes tumbling down 
because he delivers her home after an exquisite hijinks through a snow-dusted Mayfair. He interrupts his chauffeur having sex with a sex worker and then is like, you're fired! Just to really drive home. Like, the guy was like off the clock. I know! Anyway, we can talk about how bad a boss this guy is. And he ushers her home at six o'clock in the morning and he's like, all right, I'll see you later. I'm in love with you. And then her little sister is like, oh, it's the landlord! We're saved! And he's like, oh shit, you played me. And she's like, I did it and I did it. I really fell in love with you. She's like, you fell in love you played yourself <laughs> in the game of love you win or you die and that is how our heroine learned to trade her sexuality for rent <laughs> like so many young people in the booming metropolises across the world forced to go on craigslist and make do that's right we're gonna talk about the next one okay all right <laughs> the duke of christmas present by sarah mclean what's this book about this book is about dukes at christmas <laughs> christmas eve and duke Alred is all by himself in his house and shit-faced you know he's not quite shit-faced yet he's with the intention of getting shit-faced he's let all of his servants mm. have the holiday off because he's not a monster slash he's required to not exactly Be sure a how weird that's thing working. if he didn't do it because he's an ass and he's going down to his kitchen because he hears a noise. It's important to point out that his name is short for Ebenezer. It's Eben. It's never discussed as Ebenezer. But yeah, like, I think like a reference. It's deaf. A reference. Eben. The and Duke also his Elliot. last name is Neezer. It is not. <laughs> Jesus. Anyway. Which is like pretty on the nose. On the nose. I guess it'd be Duke of Neezer. Is Eben James. This is his name. The Duke of Allred. Allred. I don't know how to pronounce that. He goes down to his kitchen and he thinks it's a ghost. Which also very referential of you know the Christmas Carol and also the title of the story the Duke of Christmas present definitely and they're making Mary slash hot chocolate his kitchen <laughs> is the woman of his past the 12 years ago woman he loved whose name is Jack short for Jacqueline we learn that he is the only one that calls her Jack she's extremely beautiful and they have this really lovely tete-a-tete she's tan and freckly she is tan and freckly and then over the course of of Christmas, they have to rekindle their once dead romance and he's never going to let her go. Even though she has told him that she's going to marry a Scottish laird. Right, because she needs a significantly a younger Scottish laird because she's decided she needs to settle down. She's been traipsing around Europe with her aunt. Aunt Jane for the last 12 years. Mm-hmm. She comes back at the ripe old age of 30. Oh, two. God, 32? I can't wait till I'm 30. I think everything's just going to come together. I really liked 30. I've got all my pieces on the board. It was fun. You know, mm-hmm. it's going to be fine. <laughs> it was fun. Anyway, one of the things to note about this particular story is that the construction of past and present is really interesting and the way that Sarah McLean uses that to usher us between the time zones the one of 12 years ago and Christmas present is to acknowledge where we are on Christmas and I always think that's fun of course they decide to be together everyone lives happily ever after great well guess whose turn it is Heiress Alone. This title is a play on that classic holiday movie, Home Alone. Sure is. Our heroine gets abandoned by her family at short notice. Their dad wanted to go to Scotland to go hunting, and her mom was like, oh shit, a snowstorm's coming. And they had like 12 daughters, so they forgot about the coolest one, if you can believe it. And there are robbers afoot, just like in Home Alone, except these robbers want to rape her. And the old man who's going to save her is actually a sexy duke who's going to have sex with her. And that's 
Eris alone. Boy, that's tight. It's real good. It's exactly what that story is. Okay, so our heroine is Annis. Mm-hmm. She's in Scotland because her dad wanted to go hunting with mm-hmm. her eight sisters. They are not titled gentry. Their father is like a captain of early industry. And so their mom really wants to marry them off to... Lords. Her older sister has And so has they're like, oh somebody. my God, can you believe in this like isolated area? There is in fact a duke, the Duke of Sinclair. And so her father takes all the gals in a carriage ride and they make total idiots of themselves. Like Annis gets out looking the best and it's because her sister pushed her out of the carriage and she, she landed on her, her face. face. But the Duke of Sinclair is charmed. Also named Calder is like, she's the least bad one. But guess what? Her family does not feel the same. They're like, she's the most boring one. And so they leave her alone at the castle and she's like, you know what? This isn't so bad. My parents are going to remember me. And then she goes downstairs and she finds their housekeeper Fenella and her brother Angus. Suspicious relationship there. <laughs> we'll come back to that. Because a couple of times our author slips up and like the Duke will refer to them as the old couple. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I mean, it's remote, but is it that remote? Shades of Lannister. Yeah. Some <laughs> like really nice Lannisters who just want to make cookies <laughs> and, you know, whatever. So they're like, oh, no, Lassie, your parents aren't coming back. It's a Vaughn snowstorm. They're all ready to London by now. And you were trapped here until March. When the past clears. Yeah. It's not even Christmas yet. She's like, oh, shit. I'm going to be but so guess alone. What? She's got bigger problems because mm. the Duke of Sinclair, who was like really rude to her family, shows up at the castle and is like, there's a band of burglars traveling around the countryside and ransacking castles that aren't well protected and occupied, such as mine own, Glen Crane. And so he wants to bring Angus and Fenella back to his place, you know, just so that they can just be brother and sister together through the winter. And he discovers he's also now responsible for this young lady. The pits are, they're like, it doesn't matter what he does if he takes her back to his castle she's ruined and on the ride back she gets a head injury and she's covered in snow wet clothes and so he and his housekeeper they're like rugged Scottish types so they're totally cool with nudity and they just take (laughs) off her clothes and he thinks she's gonna die so he takes off his clothes and gets in naked in the bed next to her for body heat for body heat so she doesn't die listeners this is a real romance tip that's actually true like if you're cold and you're indoors it feels counterintuitive but like if you're in a car get naked and press yourself against the person you're in a car with you know what I'm not gonna fully endorse this because it's just something I've heard it's just something I've been told by many men who have (laughs) (laughs) check your sources they're like oh no the car's broken down and we're at the top of a mountain it happens to me three to four times a year (laughs) I've definitely seen this trope played out in movies namely the saint with Val Kilmer Um, in a sleeping bag a sleeping bag would be a good way then you're just mm-hmm. basically like two human sausages smoking yourselves. Mm-hmm. That's so romantic. Inside your casing. Sounds delicious. The casing. Anyway, yes. Is the sleeping bag. Anyways, so it works. And she's like post head injury. Revived. She's, she's like horny. She's thirsty. Thirsty for that D. Mm. And he gives it to her. He touches her boobies. They're small and he likes it. I think that's true. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. for sure true. They make a thing about her smallish breasts. And anyways, the burglars end up coming to a super well-protected castle. He eats this magic shortbread that Fenella forces him to because she wants them to fall in love. And then for the rest of the book, Annis thinks that he doesn't really love her. It's just magical cookies, which also doesn't stop her from boning him. So Why would you tell it? me about consent. Anyways, he's able to save the household from the burglars by being like, this cookbook 
with this magic shortbread recipe is the most valuable thing in my house, but I'm only going to give it to you if you don't take anything and you leave all my staff alone. And the worst leader of the burglars ever. I don't know how this guy got elected. Wasn't like, elected. Deal. Yeah. And, <laughs> and takes the cookie book I mean, to wait, the new world. Here's the thing. Fenella really sells it. Because she actually believes it's the most important thing Right. In the house. And she like prostrates herself on Calder Sinclair and she's like, no, my lord, don't do it. Don't do it. And I feel like if Fenella hadn't sold it that hard, the burglars would have been like, what you talking about, Willis? Yeah. But they like really trusted Fenella and yeah. Calder took advantage of that. <sighs> And they end up together happily ever after. Bounce chicka wah wah. Yeah, I mean, they'd already done that. She True. was ruined. There's bathtub sex. Mm. There's head injury, lovemaking. There's fear sex. And uh, that's it. No. Eris alone. Eris alone. Let's take a breather to talk about paratext in these novellas. Each little short story has its own chapters, and then it also includes an about the author and a preview of their like newest book coming out. Christmas in Central Park, I Was Right, by Joanna Soup, the most deliciously named authoress. Shoop, there it is. Okay. We got Duke. Yeah, Duke Rose. is our hero. Rose Walker is our heroine. She's got a friend. It doesn't matter. Henry. I'm not going to use his name. Um, it does not matter. <laughs> Sorry, Hen. And then we also have Mom. The aptly named Mom. <laughs> Mother. And also her father figure. Okay, listen up, guys, because Joanna Shoop does the cleverest thing in this whole fucking book. This guy isn't a Duke. He's just named Duke. What? Mic drop. Way to go, Joanna Shoup. Here we are. New world. New York City. 1889. Ooh, what a year. What a year. Gilded age. Full swing. Full swing. Swinging that gilded dick. Swinging that gilded bustle. Do you know what? The Gilded Age was really the era of big dick energy. Agreed. Because it's all energy, right? That's the point of the Gilded People think Gilded Age means like fancy. Mm-hmm. But no. of course the term was coined by Mark Twain. And it's to refer to like a piece of shit that you put some gold gilding on. Yep. So it's still cheap. It just looks fancier. Right. Big dick energy is the same way. <laughs> you don't actually have a big dick, but you're putting out that energy. Okay. BD. Gilded Age. So our heroine, she writes a column about housekeeping for a newspaper. Problem is, the woman who's like dispensing all this advice is like a well-to-do matron, married, no kids. Upper West Sider. Upper West Sider. Property that faces Central Park. Is that nice? (laughs) I don't know anything about New York. Is that nice? No, it's not. It's a fucking crapple infested with rats. But guess what? Here's the thing. Our, our heroine is actually like 22 or some shit. And yep. she does live in a boarding house. Her mom's a housekeeper. And she's always going to her mom's colleagues to get advice on what advice to give. And then she also gives like personal and relationship advice. She's all over the board. So she comes into work one day to turn in her pages. And the only person who knows her true identity, her editor is like packing up his office. And she's like, what happened? And he was like, big scam at the newspaper. Apparently, we published some stuff that was paid for, but that wasn't above board. You know, whenever you read those interviews with celebrities and then it says like paid advertisement and small font at the top. Well, they didn't do that. They didn't point out that it was a paid advertisement. And boy, Duke was pissed. Duke, who owns the newspaper, like a really wealthy young guy. He's like, you're all fired. Very much in the model of a young Citizen Kane. Oh, it is. It's very, I thought that too. Mm -hmm. It's very early Citizen Kane. 
by early I mean like at any point during the movie because it's non-linear right but anyways you know young young citizen Kane the idealistic one who just bought the newspaper before <coughs> he became mean yeah alright anyways Duke her editor's like yeah whatever I just have more time to hang out with my grandkids now not the worst not the worst buck to be thrown my way he's like thing is though Duke wants to meet you he's insistent he wants to meet Miss Rose Walker in person in the flash so you're gonna have to go up there and talk to him now she's like oh shit does he know who I really am and the editor's like I didn't tell him it's up to you whatever you want to do bye she gets up there and Duke is like whoa she's pretty young but he's also like he's not stunned by her beauty he does not note how beautiful she is he's like oh Jesus she's like this really plain looking young person he's like well she's understated not what I was expecting yeah yeah anyways and he's like all right the only way we're gonna win back the board of trustees is trust is if you throw them a dinner party with all the classic Miss Walker bells and whistles in your own home and she's an idiot and she's like yeah okay. (laughs) Well because he puts her job on the line and she's trying to get her mom out of service so that her mom's knees don't break down. Yeah no it's all bad and uh, then she goes and they decide she goes to her friend Henry whose name I ended up using who's a footman works with her mom she's like listen you've got to pretend to be my husband you've got to help me pull this off so they find a house that's been on the market forever and they decorate it for Christmas. They fill only the rooms that the guests will be in with furniture. They all start cooking stuff. And then Duke shows up. He's like, it would be really cool if you could make this secret family recipe for shortbread. Oh my God, it's the magic shortbread. Joanna Shoup does the other most brilliant thing in this book, which is not make it a thing. But anyways, clearly showing which story was my favorite. Over the course of the evening, Duke is increasingly charmed by Miss Walker and he wants to be like in her presence. And he's like, oh, if she's telling a story, like I want to hear the story. And then he realizes he's attracted to her. He sees the footman posing as her husband, making out with the maid, who's his actual fiance. And he's like, that bastard. And then through like a series of hilarious misunderstandings, he's like, oh, they have like an open marriage. And he's like, well, then I'm going to pursue Miss Walker. I like her so much. And they have sex in the wine cellar. They get locked in there. All of the servants have left. And the actual owner of the house shows up (laughs) and frees them. And uh, the gig is up. Anyways, and then they fall in love. I mean, they're already falling falling in love but like yeah the gig being up that was a really tense they get moment. married and stuff yeah yeah all right that was Boom. great let's rank them christmas okay first of all let's do our favorite and our least favorite okay favorite for me christmas in central park i can tell you which is my least favorite which was eris alone mm-hmm. do we agree on that let me think. Okay. Talk about why it's your least favorite. It's my least favorite because the sister bashing I found sort of obvious. The problem of Fenella and Angus was sort of obvious. I was deeply charmed that the servants walk in on them naked at several points and are like, oh, 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 whoops. Oh. They're excited for their Lord Laird and non-judgmental about the fact that, you know, he's having sex with an unmarried woman and they don't judge her for it either. I was charmed by that. But otherwise, like it was kind of just, I don't know, bashing and of the family in a particular way that I didn't think was very charming. The brigands represented a kind of threat that I thought was sort of underutilized. And there wasn't enough like Highland nature. I like understand that it was winter and the storm was really too tough to like be out all the time.
time, but like we could have done with some more land fetishization. Yeah. Their big bed was cool, I guess. I wanted more velvet. I don't know. I just like wanted it to feel more sumptuous. It just didn't feel particularly yeah, sumptuous. Yeah, yeah. The other settings all were like very Christmassy. And I think that is what makes a setting Christmassy is like a sumptuousness. Yeah, I agree. Like the red mm-hmm. and the dark green. All the trim. The glitter. Yeah, there's like a tactileness to Christmas that like this one just sort of <clears throat> phoned in a little bit. You know, I would say that I have some, this isn't Christmassy enough feelings about Eris alone. Mm-hmm. But I would actually say, I don't think it's my least favorite. I think my least favorite is the second one. The Duke of Christmas Present. The Duke of Christmas Present. Because there's just stuff in this story that I don't like, but I took note that like Isabeau definitely loves this. Yep. For example, she lifted her hips to his and he hissed with pleasure. Shall we make a new memory now? Didn't love that line, but... (laughs) Did. I did. I was charmed by this story. And the way in which I was charmed was the timeline structure. Yeah, I don't know. For me, it's a toss up between the Duke of Christmas Present and Eris Alone. Eris Alone genuinely had like typos and stuff that I found distracting. And I don't think it's very Christmassy, but I like the framing of it so much. Mm-hmm. And I love the reference and uh, how she kind of brought everything together. It was tidy. For me, there was some stuff that I kind of learned from reading The Duke of Christmas Present. Like, you know, we talk a lot about like convoluted metaphors yep. and how we get to them. Mm-hmm. And I think it comes from like a lack of experience. And I think whenever we talk about like an author like Kathleen Woodywis, perhaps the reason metaphor abounds, right? Like she talks about breasts being turgid, like large breasts being like these really firm. Cantaloupes. Yeah, cantaloupe. You know, it's probably because she never felt a really large breast before, you know? Sure. And everything in her book seems kind of outlandishly described. And so whenever you have like an author who clearly really has experience with some of these sensorial things. It really falls apart whenever they start talking about stuff that they aren't familiar with. For example, it goes into this long description of a kiss and it's from our hero's perspective and he says, all as he consumed her, holding her wide as he licked and sucked at her. Oh, he's not kissing her. He's performing oral sex on her. Making love to her with slow savoring strokes. She tasted the same. Rich like wine, dark like pleasure. I like dark like pleasure. But it doesn't actually mean anything sure you know Courtney Milan does a good job of like describing the actual literal physical sensation of performing oral sex on a woman that also conveys a sense of like the hero's passion Mm -hmm. and lust and everything and that just really was like rich like wine dark like passion what was it dark Dark like like pleasure pleasure. I like it it doesn't yeah of course like I don't like that stuff (laughs) we get to like different things more I know but I'm just explaining why I didn't like the story. Oh, because of that stuff? Yeah, because of that stuff. I think it really, I found it to like break the magic of the story. And I also didn't find the story that magic. I was pretty uh, consumed with anxiety for the hero because he is constantly like angry and upset and fighting. And so I didn't get that same sense of like whimsy and and stuff. This was not a whimsical story. Like the story of their broken relationship is not at all whimsical. It's really heartbreaking. And his experience of it in the moment is really heartbreaking. Yeah, this was a story for me, like all of the past was about heartbreak. So this felt like a story that was attempting to be about reparation and like what that can look like to bridge a gap. And whether or not that's successful, I think is certainly up for debate. But I mean, you're totally right. And those moments of like true alone 
on this. The, one of the great things about this story for me, at least, is that they share this secret door. Mm-hmm. And I thought that, you know, they don't tell anybody about the door and like that they have this beautiful secret between his library and her aunt's conservatory. And she's an orphan, but he's also mostly an orphan in the sense that he know, is an orphan. He is by the end of their recollection, but he has this very isolating, unloving father. His mm. mother also checked out, but she is truly an orphan in the sense that like she's raised by her aunt and her older brother but she was raised with love in a way that he never was Mm. and there's this beautiful scene where his father dies and even though there was no love lost and now he's the duke because his dad was this alcoholic who just ran the dukedom into the fucking ground her parents died the year before his dad died oh yeah and that carriage accident Mm -hmm. right because he's at school and there's that whole thing I should have been there and she comes in through the portrait and like goes and he's just like fully clothed in his bed just on top of his blankets and sheets and she just like lies down next to him and holds his hand and says I should have been there and when they have post-funeral sex yeah and it's like so sad and we've talked about so sweet yeah funeral potatoes and it's just you know she gives him the space to say like the worst possible thing which is like I'm glad he's dead Mm -hmm. and like this was a book about so much generosity between two people who really genuinely love each other and the fact that they can't fucking get it right in the moment is heartbreaking not what I'm looking for in a Christmas short story (laughs) sure like this felt like it could have been its own novel yeah and I think it would have been like better if it was bigger because I think the bad feeling in it kind of gets claustrophobic in this condensed reduced frame and I think that was my problem I was just like it's you know if romance is meant to be escapism and yet I was feeling like a sense of anxiety I was very anxious about it but also not what I come here for I was so swept up in it his sad was so good I know which one I enjoyed reading the most which is Christmas in Central Park. That was the first thing I said. Mm -hmm. So the reason I liked Christmas in Central Park, I thought this was the cleverest of the stories, the way she took like the ongoing theme, like the shortbread cookies and the idea of a duke and kind of used it to tell a story that she's familiar with. I read her about the author and she focuses on the Gilded Age era and her historicals. And so she made that work within the theme in a really clever way that was satisfying. The anxiety, the tension, those moments existed and spiced up the story, but they didn't, unlike with the Duke of Christmas present they weren't protracted throughout the entire text and so you got little nuggets of like woohoo and it was all thrilling and it really allowed you know the difference between the anxiety in the Duke of Christmas present and the anxiety in Christmas in Central Park is that I really liked both the hero and the heroine in Christmas of Central Park and I also kind of could enjoy the idea that like oh they are going to end up together Mm -hmm. like this is going to resolve in that way whereas like when I was reading the Duke of Christmas present I was like I'm not sure if I want them to end up together like he's been really cruel to her and they're just misunderstanding and misalignment of values there and a lack of communication that seems insurmountable and doesn't get resolved until the very last second when he actually expresses something. So I wasn't like too keen on their romance, but I was pretty interested in like the tete-a-tete. I really liked the way that like I talked about last time we recorded, like can't someone just like grow to like someone Mm -hmm. for something besides their beauty? And that happens in this story and it happens over the course of a short story. The sex scene was really great. I Mm -hmm. love in the wine cupboard and you also have that sense of like danger going on 
and also things that were genuinely funny in this story, like how he decides that they're in an open marriage and how everything pans out. So that's why it was my favorite one. I also thought it was very Christmassy. It was very Christmassy. It felt sumptuous and Christmassy. While Duke of Christmas Present did Christmassy stuff, but it just made me feel like the sad parts of holidays. Yeah, it did. Where you're like forced to go to dinner even though you just want to be by yourself. (laughs) It did feel a little like, I wish I had a river to skate away on. Except like maybe if Joni Mitchell was like angry sad and not (laughs) like just sad. I think you're right. I think the opener and the closer of this anthology are really good in the way that they build the relationship. Like there's the getting to know you, which feels really delicious in both Meet Me in Mayfair over the course of this evening. Like she shows him her favorite places and he gets to see London through her eyes and in a different way like this mistaken identity problem the Christmas in Central Park is just really actually comical and then Duke of Christmas present I think the fact that it's trading so much on the episode in A Christmas Carol where Ebenezer is in love with Belle and then isn't in love with Belle and then loses Belle entirely like this reparation move of Ebenezer Scrooge through the Mary Sue of Eben Allred when I read A Christmas Carol, I was never like, wow, I really hope Ebenezer gets a love story. <laughs> That wasn't a gap I needed filled. Oh, really? In my narrative. <laughs> I've seen almost every version of A Christmas Carol. One of my favorites being The Muppet Christmas Carol. And I really want that Ebenezer to end up with Belle. Never felt the need. Uh, it's just so heartbreaking. He just doesn't get it. That's the whole thing. And it's like when you live a life without love, it's hard to receive it. All right. So you're the editor. Let's do a little thought experiment. Mm-hmm. You're an editor and you're told, listen, books are only printed on paper now. Mm-hmm. We've gotten rid of ebooks entirely. And And we also have a severe lack of trees. Mm -hmm. So we are only going to be able to publish one of these short stories. Well, since it's all going to charity, which is another thing to mention in terms of this anthology. Just tell me your favorite story. Morgan, again. No, which book do you publish? Which short story do you publish? You can only publish one. Who am I publishing for? Whoever the publisher of this fucking book is. Am I publishing for British people? Am I publishing for Americans? That's not a real distinction that happens. I mean, we're living in a post-apocalyptic world with less trees. That's true. But guess what? We still have international distribution. Oh, it's still well, a thing that happens. That changes things. Okay, great. International, both Brits and Americans will be reading this book. Other countries at it will be read in. All the English-speaking ones. Wales, the Republic of Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, parts of Antarctica. Canada. Canada uh, the U.S. Virgin Islands. Ooh, Guam. Guam. Fucking... Puerto Rico, all the places. Actually, you know what? Everywhere. Worldwide, <laughs> global distribution. Everyone's going to read this story. But I story. can only do one. So you can really only pick the one that you like best because you can't think about it in these contexts. You're going to overwhelm yourself. You're already overwhelmed at picking the story you like best. So I don't think you should take a whole lot of external <laughs> factors into consideration. Again, the best isn't a good way for me to measure. Which one are you? I'm not asking what the best one is. I'm asking which one are you going to publish if you can only publish one I can tell you which one I'm not gonna publish we've established that yeah I just like I don't find these experiments particularly useful for the way that I'm thinking about romance (laughs) I know I just want you to do it why because we both agreed to share our favorite and least favorite and you haven't held up your end of the bargain I narrowed it down to two out of four like we haven't even talked about which one wait which two out of four did you get you got rid of uh I got rid of uh, meet me in Mayfair meet me in Mayfair okay we were going to say our favorite and our least favorite. I said mine. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, 
thought about it carefully, mm-hmm. made my decision. Yeah. I did it. Mm-hmm. I have two. I have two favorites. Okay. Uh, what's the most Christmassy story? You're going to put it on a gradient. I think Eris alone is the least Christmassy. I think I would rank Meet Me in Mayfair above that, Christmas in Central Park above that, and I think the Duke of Christmas Present is my most Christmassy because it takes so long in both Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and yeah. the cooking and the drinking. It's entirely focused on Christmas Day. Mm-hmm. My Christmasiest one is Meet Me in Mayfair. Mm. My least Christmasiest is Eris Alone, but I also think Home Alone isn't really a Christmas movie. I think that's fair. I mean, it's sad at Christmas time. You know, yeah. it's like the same thing. She hews very well to her theme, her guiding theme. Yeah. I would say the second most Christmasiest is The Duke of Christmas Present, and the third would be Christmas in Central Park. I'm mad that shortbread always tastes bad in all of these stories. I didn't it's like that. It's just that, that one shortbread recipe. The last one in Christmas in Central Park, they look at the shortbread recipe and they're like, this is garbage. And yeah. So the help actually makes good shortbread. I know. I liked that a lot. I thought that was really good. That was a good switcheroo. Yeah. Standing up for shortbread. Yeah. Somebody fucking had to after all that. I, I think they all that. generally agreed shortbread is delicious and were disappointed <laughs> by the bad shortbread. I don't think there's an anti-shortbread bend in this book. No. Sarah McLean provides her family recipe for shortbread. Mm-hmm. I didn't make it. Neither did I. <laughs> Sorry. You narrowed it down to 50% of the book mm-hmm. was your favorite. Yep. <laughs> How did you get married at such a young age? <laughs> Uh, that's such a good question yeah how did that happen that's like an actual choice with real stakes and you made it pretty early on in life I think I'm better with higher stakes than low stakes great you can choose one author to survive oh my god the short story Merry Christmas on Death Island yeah pick one what author would you save you would save Tessa Dare yeah I mean that's pretty much just true. I don't know. I really want to read some more Joanna Shoup. I was really impressed. I think we should. Mm. I was impressed too. Are you declaring that your favorite? No. I was impressed. I enjoyed it. It was fun for me to read. I also loved the subsidiary characters as Morgan has mentioned the slow discovery of a potential open marriage was deliciously humorous. Like Henry was a really fun secondary character. Certainly more fun than most of the secondary characters that we had. Although I think Aunt Jane was pretty good and like the absence of Fiona Carville was a good inciting incident in Meet Me in Mayfair. (laughs) Fiona Carville, the friend, not the main character. All right. All right. Sexiest part. Ooh, overall? Yeah, you can only pick one. I was asking for clarification. I just want to specify, you cannot declare 50% of the text the sexiest part and the for other sure, 50% of the text the weirdest part. No, I think my sexiest bit was the wine cellar. And like the thing that made that the sexiest bit for me was the thinking before and behind it. Like the sex act itself was very sexy. Like, you know, you just want to take each other's clothes off so much that you throw up a skirt so I'm always into a scene like that but the fact that he's like you know you've tricked me into marrying you and she's like no my virginity was my own to dispose of in my own goddamn time I was like yeah fucking yeah what I didn't like about that is that this problem that we come to again and again with romance novels which is the idea that like men don't have to consent Mm. and he believed he was having sex with someone who she wasn't that's a good point he consented to have sex with a married woman wealthy woman in an open relationship who would be 
discreet and uh, was not a virgin. Yep. You know, I don't blame him for being really upset. And yeah. Being like, you know, if someone's going to lie to you about that. That's true. She did not come clean in the first part. So with that in mind, the sexiest part for me was when our heroine in our least favorite story, Eris Alone, is taking a bath. Mm. And she was set up by Fenella. So she's taking a bath to warm up her cold, cold body. Mm-hmm. And the Duke walks in. It gets pretty male gazy, but then I was like, I kind of enjoyed it. Yeah. Male gazy in a fun way. Yeah. And everybody was conscious of who they were having sex with That's in that true. scene, which was nice. There was no hoodwinking. Yeah, no trickery involved. <laughs> no chicanery. Pleasant. I was most disappointed. Which like 50% of the sex scenes in this book were fueled by lies because in Meet Me in Mayfair they don't actually have sex in that book until after all is revealed. Right. They make out in the yeah. in the park. That's what I was about to say. I was most disappointed. Oh, the sexiest part was whenever they opened up that carriage. Yeah, which is kind of crazy I frankly. about a bare ass pumping up and down. Oh, God. That was like the most graphic this whole book got. It was very graphic. And also like mean. Like your driver's off the clock as you mentioned and like yeah he was a real dick about it yeah it was like only midnight and balls go until 4am like you weren't (laughs) supposed to be there why are you being a ginormous jerk face and I also felt like a a distinct lack of empathy for the sex worker on both their parts frankly yeah and like I think our heroine does say something like well I hope she got paid ahead of time and it's like hilarious yeah it was a weird play for laughs also it's weird that their sex scene is an epilogue I'm like who this for not for me I didn't read it (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't terribly sexy. Why would you put an epilogue in a short story? I don't know. That feels not indulgent, but like, it feels like a weird choice. Silly. Like a weird choice. Uh, weirdest Ooh. part. What is my weirdest Besides part? Besides the fact that Angus and Fenella are probably having sex. They are definitely canoodling of some I kind. I just wish the author had kept her story straight <laughs> on those two because referring to them as a couple twice is really weird. I mean, they are two people. So if we're using couple, couple in the <laughs> loosest term possible. Uh, uh, two human beings. <laughs> that come as a couplet. I did have a weirdest part. Another weird part, but not my weirdest part. The other guy in Duke of Christmas Present seemed pretty sexy. I bet he has like a story coming up. Charles Lawton. Was that the Scottish guy? Oh, no. He may already. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I hope so. Yeah. He seemed dreamy. I would like to hear about his bare ass pumping up and down. He also just seemed like fun, like genuinely empathetically fun. I think genuinely speaking, like not to sort of like beat a dead horse, but like that brouhaha out of the carriage to meet the Duke felt the most contrived. Mm, are you talking about the sisters pushing each other out of the carriage? Yeah, and then like the conversation that's overheard and like there's the guy who just happens to be the Duke and like uh, the fact that like dad can't like rally the girls into a semblance of order or the fact that the women whose lives depend on being pleasing are not pleasing. That felt weird. One of the things that I have marked in Christmas in Central Park, I'm like, why is his name Duke? And then immediately just think, about John Wayne. <laughs> By 
the way, we get quite a bit of background on Duke and our heroine, considering how short this book is. Like, we, we know that his family made money in mining mm-hmm. in Montana, mm-hmm. and we kind of assume that his great great grandfather was one of the burglars from Scotland. That is definitely what we assume. And uh, that they probably named their child Duke in the great American tradition to create a false sense of power in aristocracy <gasps> where there is true power. It was so funny because I, I really did. I was envisioning him speaking in a like weird mix wow, between. Belgrim. Yeah, it was like. That a just mix- sounds like Jimmy Stewart, what I just did. So it's like funny. A mix between Orson Welles and um, John Wayne. It was oh, that's very, not a bad mix. It was quite a mix in my mind. So like that sex John Wayne is was so like- the worst. <laughs> he, yeah. Uh, Died with a lot of undigested meat in his gut. God, Christmas in Central Park is so good. It is. It's a really I don't know why it's not your favorite. My weirdest part was the fact that there's this great sex scene, but it's not actually appropriately consensual. I think that's right. That's the weirdest part for me. Womance? Womance. Sure, womance. Also, proceeds go to benefit Planned Parenthood. Another great way to support Planned Parenthood is to get your medical work done there. That is a great way to support Planned Parenthood. Yeah, I've got an appointment. I'm going to get my annual exam at my neighborhood PP. It's really easy to make an appointment online and they accept pretty much all insurances. For sure. You can say that because they accept my insurance. (laughs) Also, important thing, if you're thinking about maxing out your tax deduction, if we even do those anymore, there are two different arms to Planned Parenthood. There's the stuff that makes healthcare affordable for women. And then there's Planned Parenthood Action, which is specifically their political arm. That money goes to fighting litigation battles in places like Missouri and Mississippi to keep clinics open. So if you didn't know, now you know. And with that... Womance or no man's for you, you didn't say. Oh, womance. Deaf womance. I I like this one better. It's a, it's a three out of four womance for you. For sure. You can't move for all the womance. My fingers are wrinkly yet again. You did not masturbate to this book. Dare you. I think I might like this one better than the Claypost Christmas. Oh, really? Yeah, I like these better than that one. Yeah, this is a better collection of stories. That's a good measurement. These are a better collection than the last one. If you have to choose for a Christmas romance, might I recommend The Dukes Who Stole Christmas? Allow us to recommend the one that includes an elderly brother-sister romance. (laughs) It'll get your fires burning. And some dubious typos. And with that, happy holidays. Loosen your holla stay, (laughs) but never your holla principles. Mwah. Mwah. Indeed. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. All editing and music is done by Nick Gravelin. Our logo is by Mary Reichman. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. Feeling woeful about having to wait a whole week for more Womance? Well, cheer up, Buttercup. You can creep or connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, or our website. Our webpage is womancepod.com. If you prefer to be more verbose and or direct, why not send us an email? We're womancemail at gmail.com, and we can't wait to hear from you. In the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast listening app. Until next week. <laughs>